Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Carla McLaren. Carla is someone I've had the pleasure of working with for almost two decades. She is an award-winning author, social science researcher, and an expert in emotions and empathy. Her work focuses on her grand unified theory of emotions, which values even the most quote-unquote negative emotions and opens startling new pathways into self-awareness, effective communication, and healthy empathy. What sounds true, Carla has written the landmark book, The Language of Emotions, a book on the art of empathy and a new book called The Power of Emotions at Work, Accessing the Vital Intelligence in Your Workplace. What Carla McLaren makes clear is that the contemporary workplace, most of them, expect us to leave at least some of our emotions behind when we come to work. Listen to Carla about why that doesn't serve us and how it actually creates unregulated social structures that we're stepping into in organizations and how instead we need to access the vital intelligence of all of our emotions. That intelligence that makes us human and informs our very best thinking. Here's my conversation with Carla McLaren. Carla, I've learned so much from you about emotions and emotions as intelligent messengers. And now you've applied your work with the language of emotions to the workplace. What happened? What happened in your own life? What evolution did you go through where you said, I want to apply the intelligence of emotions to work? Um, I went to work. And I saw just how awful the workplace is. And I thought it was me, you know, like I'm just an unusual person or I'm in unusual places. And I, I, I prefer to run my own businesses, which, you know, is a dangerous thing, right? You don't have any support. You don't have any benefits. You don't have retirement, right? It's, it's, it's its own danger, but I much prefer doing that to working in the just the non-functional social spaces that I saw at work. And I just wondered, why is it so bad? Why is the workplace so bad? And I began to work with emotions and people would call me out of the blue and ask me about things that were going on at work. So I went into any number of workplaces and I went, oh, it wasn't just me. It's bad. Workplaces are bad. And So I actually went to school and um, majored in the uh, sociology of occupations to kind of understand the history of work. I um, got certified as a human resource administrator. I got certified as a career guidance counselor, right? I just wanted to look at the whole problem. I wanted to go all the way around and see what happened here. And the, one of my ideas was, that the human resource administration department in every business, they're the people who manage, you know, and make sure that the emotional world of the business is healthy. 
And I was disabused of that emotion, of that notion, uh, pretty much right away because I realized that uh, HR, human resources, is primarily a paralegal. They handle hiring, firing, leave, really important stuff, um, pregnancy leave, um, um, illness, uh, um, all kinds of paralegal things. They don't have time to to work with the emotions of people unless you know someone in HR decides they will do that. But also they work for the business. They don't work for the for the workers. And so what I've heard from a lot of workplace consultants is HR is not your friend. Don't go to HR. And that is something I looked at in my research as well is people don't go to HR. So the only people in the workplace who are set up to help people with their emotional and social lives actually aren't set up at all. There's no setup for supporting people in a human way in the workplace. I don't know. Um, well, sounds true is one of the healthier workplaces I've ever been in. Do you have any mechanism? Do you have a social and emotional sort of place that people can go? It, do you, what did you create? Sure. Well, you're turning the tables on me early in the conversation, Carla, and <laughs> we will get there. But one one thing you said that got my attention is this whole notion of what's good for the organization and good for, quote unquote, the workers is being different and yeah. that the HR department is supposed to work for the people who run the business, who don't care about the welfare of the employees. I yeah. I would take issue with that. I don't believe in that. I believe what's good for all the employees at the business is good. For the company, and we need yeah. to uh, hold that in our view, and that our HR department is tasked with uh, employee happiness and thriving as mm -hmm. part of their goals. But okay, you write in the power of emotions at work. The workplace is a social and emotional disaster area. It's a five <laughs> alarm fire, and you're really pointing out this fallacy that we think we can somehow exile our emotions. We can leave mm -hmm. our emotions at the door mm -hmm. and we can come to work and be these kind of productivity machines. Yeah. And I'm wondering what happened in your research and in looking at the evolution of the contemporary workplace, what happened such that we started to think emotions aren't welcome here? How did that come to be? I think it was a part of the entire entire process of industrialization where people were moved off of their own land. And then it became that the only place you could get work was cities. And it was generally cities where um, <clears throat> the workers were expected to provide cheap labor for the beginning of the industrial revolution. And so your needs as an individual, you need to eat to be treated well, to have a reasonable eight-hour day, to not be a child worker. Those, those weren't even a thing. And so I think shutting down the workplace in that, in that industrial revolution, as people were, were moving away from caring for themselves and their communities and actually having to leave their farms and leave their, their, their villages and go to the city where the work had moved, um, I think that would have been the beginning of it because you couldn't, you know, Henry Ford couldn't, um, uh, he couldn't take the time for people to be having trouble because you were a cog in the machine of Henry Ford's world. You know, he's just one guy I'm thinking of right now. Uh, but I think it was a part of the kind of capitalist shift into away from an, an agrarian or more, um, more village and community-minded place where people made their own clothes and made their own food and they didn't have a lot of prepared and industrialized objects, right? Um, when that shifted, so did the need for emotions to shut up at work, just shut up and get your work done. And that has stayed with us uh, to this very day where people will say, your emotions don't belong at work. And I'm thinking, what? <laughs> they're here. Yeah, they're everywhere. What, what are you even talking about? Yeah. Well, interestingly, I think in most workplaces, 
some of your emotions belong. Like we want your enthusiasm. We want your positivity. We want your excitement. We want your problem solving skills. What we don't want is this other set of emotions. You know, we don't really have time for your sadness or grief. There's not, that's, this isn't the place for that. No. Uh, There's a lot of things that work isn't the place for. But share with me your view of that notion. Like you can bring some of your emotions, the ones that, you know, help us function well and make more (laughs) money. But these other ones that are really time consuming, you know, go talk to a friend about that after work. Yeah. Well, I call that in the book a toxic positivity bias, which is where, and I call it a dangerously mistaken belief that the allegedly positive emotions, happiness, contentment, joy, you know, enthusiasm, are the only emotions that should be felt or shared. Um, But what this bias does, and you would think, well, if it's all just happiness, then everyone's going to be happy. It's very good. But it it ends up causing extensive suffering as people suppress all their forbidden emotions, most of which are the problem-solving emotions. And they lose their emotional awareness and skills and they become unable to address serious problems because they can't access their emotions. And so much research shows this. Uh, in one study, 85% of workers w- did not communicate important workplace problems upward. They didn't. And these were things that were workplace problems that were going to impact productivity. They were going to impact, you know, everything. And they refused and they asked them why. And they're like, well, why should I? No one's going to listen. They only want to hear the happy stuff, you know, or nothing will happen. Nobody's going to want to change. And what that tells me is the emotions of change, the emotions of awareness and the emotions of problem solving have been mistakenly uh, pushed out the window. Well, help help me understand which emotions relate to our problem solving abilities. Well, they all do. I saw a funny meme uh, the other day that said you can have all emotions or none. Those are your choices, all or none. And someone's like, um, uh, they couldn't decide because they didn't want the supposedly negative ones. Um, but the emotions of problem solving, anger would help you understand when there is there are boundaries being crossed and rules being broken. Shame would help you understand when your behavior or some process is breaking the boundaries of others and creating like a work slowdown. Um, fear is your instincts and your intuition. It would tell you if there's some change or novelty happen happening that, that requires your your presence and your your awareness and anxiety is a beautiful emotion that helps you understand that there's tasks and deadlines coming up and you need to be prepared for them like all of the emotions are just these wonderful brilliant um like a kaleidoscopic rainbow of um of awareness and capacity and most of them are uh unwelcome so you get the modern workplace, you, you get the modern workplace, a dysfunctional, um, psychologically unhealthy space for most people. Now there's like 15 to, I think 27% of workplaces, people say that they're, that they're functional, but that leaves, you know, a lot of workplaces that aren't. So just for a moment, let's describe a truly functional healthy, emotionally wise workplace, emotionally wise workplace environment? What would it be like? Well, there's something that I've seen when I go into workplaces, which is that there's silos where marketing is separate from art, is separate from production, is separate from shipping, right? So there's silos. And if you're not careful, those silos become kingdoms that don't have anybody going across, right? Um, And in an emotionally um, well-regulated workplace, we would realize we need this silo, but there is a danger to silos. And so we would listen for the anger and the sadness. We would listen for the jealousy and envy coming up. And if it was up, we would all be aware what those emotions did. And we would say, okay, there's a problem in the flow here. And some, our emotions are telling us something is wrong. 
So what do we need to do as intelligent people who have emotions to listen to these emotions and support them and figure out what happens next because something's not working. And if we have a toxic positivity bias, everybody knows it's not working, but they don't, they literally don't have the language they need to speak of it. They, they can't because they can't access the emotions that help them um, identify problems. Now, you used an interesting phrase, an emotionally well-regulated workplace. What does that mean, well-regulated? It's a term I came up with as I was writing this book. Um, no, I think I wrote about it in The Art of Empathy. It was somewhere. And um, I was looking at what what are the features that that exist in a place where your emotions are are welcome and you are safe to have and feel and share emotions. What what does that look like? And so I created a nine part sort of sort of list of what would it look like? For instance, mistakes and conflicts are addressed without avoidance, hostility, or blaming. I don't I don't know many workplaces where that happens, right? Um, and uh, you and your emotions and sensitivities are noticed and respected. Nobody tells you to uh, cowboy up, stop crying, you know, or whatever. Um, get over yourself. Uh, that that people have a space for you to be a an emotional human being. Okay, those are uh, a couple examples. I know one thing that you mm -hmm. teach in the power of emotions at work is something that you call conscious complaining. And here you are, you're talking about people who have an issue, there's something wrong. And, you know, I, I've heard it said, if you're going to complain, that's okay, but bring a solution with you. Don't just complain. And <laughs> I wonder what you think about that and what makes conscious complaining different than just, you know, complaining, which, you know, if people come to me all yeah. the time and are complaining, I, I have to say, I'm not sure how emotionally well-regulated, I think I'll be, I'll just be receiving all these complaints. Yeah. So what's conscious complaining? Yeah, most of us have experienced unconscious complaining where people just come and they just lay it out and they just load us up with their un, I don't know, un, unprocessed complaints. Conscious complaining is a different process than this because it uses some of the functions of ritual, one, you set your intention. Two, there's a beginning, middle, and end. Three, you are aware what you're doing, right? You bring awareness to a process. You bring consciousness to it. And what I find with conscious complaining as an individual is that I think a lot of us, well, I think we've been trained since birth or before to avoid the supposedly, allegedly negative emotions. And even though I've been doing this work for, I don't know, 40, 50 years, I still will sometimes avoid the, the allegedly negative emotions and I'll just power through. Conscious complaining gives me a chance to catch up with my emotions and say, no, this is just freaking hard. This is hard. And this is me talking to myself and I'm overworked and there's no one to help me. And saying those things out loud brings me to emotional congruence. It tells me what's true. And then, though I started with complaining, what I realized underneath is also a great deal of grief because I'm alone and I forgot to ask for help and, and all those things. So you come to this awareness. Conscious complaining with a partner, which I teach in the book, is a way to help people be in the presence of other people's complaints without fixing it or without needing to go into those complaints with them. I think that's one of the problems with complaining without consciousness is that it's a cry for help. And people may take time away from work that they don't have to take away from work to help you deal with your complaining, you know, with whatever's troubling you. In an emotionally unregulated workspace, that's pretty much what's gonna happen all day if you don't just avoid people. Because you're like, um, you know, talk to the hand. I've got to go. I've got to, you know, I've got to get this thing out by three. And so all this emotional truth, all this reality is, is silenced in that place. Conscious complaining with a partner 
it's it's a silly three-minute process where you complain and the other person listens, not as kind of a dead rock, but the person isn't supposed to give any, there's no, there's no advice, there's no solution. You just sit there and you go, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. Of course you, you know, you just create a space for the complaining and in so doing, you break some of the, the emotional suppression that lives uh, within us every day and around us every day. And then you get to trade places. And so here, um, the, my applied work is called Dynamic Emotional Integration or DEI. Here in the DEI uh, community, we'll text each other and go, do you have time for a CC? conscious complaining uh, do you have time and we'll just get on the phone and or zoom and we'll just complain the other person will complain and we'll go about our day and we will have found out what was true underneath all that social conditioning that that, that represses our emotions so i don't want to repress people's emotions or suppress nope. people's emotions uh, at the same time, I'm imagining someone coming to me with a complaint, and I can certainly imagine listening mm -hmm. and just listening and taking it in. But then after that's over, I want to solve the problem. Like, yeah. I want to solve the problem because I want the company to work better. Is yeah. that a problem for any reason? I mean, that seems pretty natural to me. It does. We have a... You know, my husband, Tino, is a major problem solver. And I have learned to say to him, Tino, I don't need a solution. I just need to complain. And so to know which it is, right? At, at your level, I don't think you would be doing conscious complaining in this way at work, right? Because mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're the boss. I think people would need to do their conscious complaining before they came to you and bring you something that needs a solution because in an emotionally well-regulated workplace, they would see you as an individual with your own emotions and sensitivities rather than treating you like someone who doesn't go to solution, right? They would know if I want to go to solution, I'll go to Tammy. If I want to complain, you know, I'll go to Andrew and then he and I will trade or something, right? Sure. Yeah, so, so your way of being in the world would be respected and people wouldn't take your time to do this kind of internal um i don't know housekeeping of emotion right that makes sense to yeah. me now yeah. you know carla i i do hear a lot about uh emotional intelligence at work mm -hmm. and i also mm -hmm. hear a lot about the power and the importance of psychological safety at work mm -hmm. I and mean, this has become its own uh, buzzword, psychological safety. And it's yeah. now been shown if you want to have a high-performing team, this is mm -hmm. research that came out of Google with their Aristotle project, you have to have psychological safety. That's the number one factor on the team. So I see people who want to create high-functional teams at least saying they value the creation of psychological safety. I'm curious what you think helps from your work with the power of emotions at work create genuine psychological safety on teams? What does it? I would say it's certainly those nine aspects of the unemotionally well-regulated social structure. Did I give you two? You offered two of those aspects. Yeah, maybe you could okay. share the other ones as well. Since Let me go look. Key. It's a list. It's a list. And I need to find the list. There we go. Number one, emotions are spoken of openly and people have workable emotional vocabularies. Two, mistakes and conflicts are addressed without avoidance, hostility, or blaming. Three, you can be honest about mistakes and difficulties without being blamed or shunned. Four, your emotions and sensitivities are noticed and respected. Five, you notice and respect the emotions and sensitivities of others. Six, your emotional awareness and skills are openly requested and respected. And this is really important because if someone's a really good listener, they become the unconscious complaining shrine and they may lose their capacity to do their work because everyone needs to come with, to them with their complaints, right? Seven, you openly request and respect the emotional awareness and skills of others. You don't unconsciously complain to anybody either. You realize that that person is an undiscovered country. They're not 
the garbage can of your emotions. Um, eight, you and others feel safe enough and supported enough to speak the truth, even if it might destabilize relationships or processes. That's a hard one. Nine, the social structure welcomes you, nourishes you, and revitalizes you. So I haven't looked into this concept of psychological safety. I wonder what the features of it are. Um, I think it might not be at that level, at that, at that base level of emotion. I think it might be kind of a, like a higher level language rather than you get to be who you are and feel how you feel. And people are going to respect that. So I can imagine a business person, not unlike me, but uh, maybe less familiar with uh, the value of high sensitivity, saying, you know, look, I want emotions to be present, but we have some really serious HSPs, highly sensitive people who work in our company. And I don't have the time for that. I don't have the space and, and like you, you know, we have to respect their sensitivity. It's too much for me. Like we will slow down. We will become kumbaya central and we will not get our work done. Uh, so can we find like some middle ground here? Like, yeah, some of your, like some level of emotions are welcome, but I can't go into that deep space with you. That's not what the workplace is for. What, what would yeah. you say to that? Well, one of the things I notice about the highly sensitive person, high, you know, empath, whatever nonsense is that these are generally people with not very good emotional skills and not very good boundaries. One of the reasons they're sensitive is that they don't have good boundaries. And so we can understand that they would, from the DEI perspective, that they need to begin to learn how to work with anger. They need to begin to learn how to work with thresholds and boundaries and how to um, 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 organize their sensitivities. So, so making everything into like a soft pillow strewn place I don't think is going to be emotionally respectful for the people who don't need that. So in an emotionally well-regulated structure, these people without boundaries would understand who and what they are and the people who, right? Because um, though it's not good for them, people without boundaries do a great deal of emotion work and emotional labor and empathy work within uh, um, a social structure. I don't want them to, but they do. Um, if everybody understands emotions, if everybody understands the rules of a, or the, the, the guidelines of an emotionally well-regulated social structure, then that's not going to be a problem anymore because these uh, boundary-impaired people are no longer going to be expected to do the emotion work of other bodies. They will be respected and um, able to function uh, without so much, um, what, what, what would you call it? So much burden, so much emotional burden placed on them. What if they're taking that burden on? That's what they like to do. That's what they like to do. That's what they like to do. And that's a part of creating an emotionally well-regulated social structure is to know that in a poorly regulated structure, people like that are going to have to arise. They, I call them keystones. Uh, a keystone is a stone. When you build an arch, you start from the bottom of either side and you come up and you arch at the top. And there's a stone at the very top in the middle of the two arches coming together. And it's called a keystone. And the keystone is put on last. And it is what makes the structure strong. In, a, in, a, in an emotionally unregulated workplace, the keystones hold up the building. They hold up the social structure. And it's tiring and it's, um, it's not something people should have to do. But when emotions are not allowed, the, this kind of work is, um, is essential. It's, you, you can't not have them. And so entering into an agreement as, as a social group to get everybody's feet on the ground and everybody's emotional awareness raised up means that those keystones are going to stop being stones in, in, in a structure and they are going to start being functional human beings again who are respected rather than relied upon because the structure doesn't work without them. Okay, so yeah. you, you 
teach in the book about four different types of keystones, ambassadors, mm -hmm. connectors, peacemakers, and agitators. And I, I recognized all four. Uh, I wonder <laughs> if you could just give a couple sentences about each of them, just uh, as a way of introducing it. And then I have a follow-up question for you. But what is an ambassador? How, what's their role? Um, think of, of someone who welcomes everybody. Um, Oh, welcome to, you know, <laughs> to the the Grand Hotel. Welcome. Uh, ambassadors are people who take on the usually unpaid task of welcoming and training new people when the social structure doesn't have an appropriate training program. And so many workplaces don't. They especially don't have an appropriate training program about what are the rules of the existing social structure because nobody knows. Nobody could tell you because we, you know, emotions are again shoved under the carpet and thrown out the window, and they are how we function as humans. So if we don't have access to our emotions, these ambassadors are going to be necessary because nobody knows how to welcome people into a social structure that they don't even understand verbally themselves. One of the ways you tell if you've broken rules in the social structure like this is silence, dirty looks. Um, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> throat clearing, because people don't know how to say, we don't, we don't speak that way to this person before 9am in the morning, because coffee, <laughs> right? We, don't, we know in our bodies, but we don't know, because everything again, is in the, the area of the unconscious. So ambassadors will have to arise uh, in that kind of a place. Okay, next, we have uh, connectors. Connectors, when I talked about um, things siloing, like marketing being siloed away from, from the art department or something along those lines, if, they're, if the social structure is unregulated, they are going to get turfy and they will stop being able to understand each other. So marketing needs something tomorrow and the art department is usually used to taking six weeks, right? there's gonna be a tremendous conflict. A connector is someone who's going to be able to go from the art department to marketing and back, right? Okay, yeah. and my understanding, and see if I have this correctly, is that these keystones, these roles would not be necessary. People would mm -hmm. not come in and animate these roles yeah. if the social structure was, quote, regulated, unquote. Mm -hmm. There might be people who are kind of connecty because that's just how they are or yeah, kind of welcoming, are. but there wouldn't, you wouldn't be like, Oh, this person is the connector at our company because it yeah. would be built into the organization in some way. Yes. And it wouldn't be that if that person was gone that day, you're screwed, right? Because they're, the silos are so rigid that you cannot get stuff done if she's out that day or he's out that day. So that's when you see also in um, hierarchies, you know, hierarchies are very rigid structures where you've got the board and the boss and the managers and the workers, and they're very separate entities, right? So a connector will probably be able to go across that artificial fragmentation and be able to talk to a number of people. Um, assistance, assistance of the more powerful people tend to be connectors. Um, because they have okay. to be. And then you have uh, peacemakers and agitators. Uh, just mm -hmm. give us a, a little bit on each of these uh, last two types of keystones. Peacemakers are like connectors. They would do the emotion work and the empathy work necessary to keep the art department and the, and the marketing department speaking to each other. So they would know. They go, um, but they tend to be more specific, whereas a connector sort of does it all. A uh, peacemaker will be drawn toward areas of conflict and they would want to solve them, right? So they would hold that sort of position of solving. And usually you'll find peacemakers in families. Uh, they come from families where that was a role they learned, uh, how to get between mom and dad or sister and sister. Yeah. And the agitators? And the agitator is my favorite. Um, <laughs> The agitators would also be called <clears throat> the assholes. Um, 
they act out whichever emotions are not welcome in the workplace. They're the shadow workers. So whatever we, we all agree that no one is angry in this workplace. And it's like, why don't you just put a sign out in front of your workplace saying, please, angry people come and work here because they will come. And, you know, everybody will project, you know, their anger shadow onto them, but they are just, they are acting as, as um, balancers of an unbalanced workplace. So again, just to make sure I understand this, in this mythic regulated social structure, this <laughs> regulated workplace, uh, I say mythic because uh, it's hard to find individuals, let alone couples, let alone small groups of people, let alone a whole workplace that's regulated. But let's just say that it exists. Let's just say this could exist. Yeah. Um, you would not find agitators. You wouldn't find connectors. Is that your hypothesis here? That you, there wouldn't, you would there, not find un, unidentified and unpaid people doing these jobs and getting um, and doing this work uh, and burning themselves out behind it. You would not find people in this work in, a, in essentially an abusive way. You you would have connectors and ambassadors and peacemakers, but they get paid for it, and they would maybe even have that title on their door. And you would have an agitator. You would have someone. We have at DEI, we do have this. It's not mythic. We have it here at emotiondynamics.com or whatever. Um, but there are people who are really good with grief and people who are really good with anxiety and people who are really good with anger. And I will go to them and go, I'm thinking of doing this. What do you think? <laughs> And they're like, no, but you know, we know that's who they are. We know that's what they can do. They have other job descriptions and they do all sorts of things, but there are people that I'll go to when I have a problem in my own psyche. I tend to be very positive. I tend to be extremely optimistic. It's a very bad way to be. Um, and I have people here who were drawn to this social structure to fill out my problems, just like I fill out their problems when they need optimism, right? But we know we're doing it, we're trading. Uh, now you, you said something kind of in passing that I'm very optimistic and that's a very bad way to be. I think most people <laughs> think it's a good way to be, especially a good way to be in business. So that's provocative <laughs> in and of itself. Yeah, I understand what a toxic positivity bias is. For some reason, I have an extremely high uh, positive outlook, um, sort of absurdly so. And what that means is I will agree to things that maybe I can't do, maybe nobody could do, but I'll be like, that would be awesome. Um, I will look ahead and I will think, you know, <laughs> trends are going up. <laughs> It'll never change. Um, that is a tendency of my of my neurology. That's just a tendency, and it works out. Um, it's fifty fifty in my own personal life, but in terms of a business, somebody like me who doesn't see the problems coming is just like a I don't know a baby with a loaded handgun. And I have learned that I need to check in with people who have a naturally more negative outlook and say, what do you think of this? Is this good? And they'll be like, no. <laughs> and so I've become, I've learned how to develop a more negative outlook because I have these people in my life who are mentors for me, you know, my, my, my neurological mentor. And I am mentors for them because if my friend with a very, my coworker with a very negative outlook starts going on, this is never going to work. And I can say, hold on, let's look and see what can work and how do we, you know, how do we plow ahead? So we find ways to balance each other rather than I'm just this boss going off, you know, in, on a rainbow traipsing journey of unicorns and pulling everybody with me. Or my workers are just cranky ass bastards all day long and they're they're managing me unconsciously and i'm living unconsciously so I, does that make sense well it's interesting to me um what i hear you saying is a, a welcoming of all of the different emotional perspectives that there could be and that they all have value and yet mm -hmm. i I've, I've had people on this podcast relatively recently 
who have shared about uh, how important having a positive outlook is in terms of the results that you create at work, that it's actually a skill, it's something to cultivate. And uh, so anyway, so to be honest with you, I'm at the moment, I'm holding both in a kind yeah. of questioning way inside myself. And yeah, I'm wondering what you have to say about that. I've really become very interested in how and why we shut down the emotions and how and why we develop this absurd and dysfunctional idea of positive and negative emotions. Um, and what I've realized is that the so-called negative emotions shake up the status quo and the so-called positive emotions go along. In a capitalist, sexist, racist, ableist, transphobic, homophobic, homophobic world, these negative emotions would stand up and say, this is some shit and we need to change it. And we need to change it every day. And it's not okay. It's not okay. It's not okay. I think that turning emotions into negative and positive, which was a terrible idea, is a way to maintain social control and keep a uh, keep a kind of death cult going. I think the the so-called positive emotions, happiness, contentment, and joy, they're beautiful, they're lovely, they're wonderful, and they belong with their friends, all of the other emotions. I notice that when people believe there are negative emotions, they don't develop any skills with them. But when they believe there are positive emotions, they become abusive toward those emotions. They strap them on and they try to keep them with them at every possible time. And happiness, contentment, and joy are like, I'll do what you ask, but my God, I need my friends. I need my anger to set boundaries. I need my shame to help me figure out what's going on. I need my grief to see what has died. I need my, my depression. I need my suicidal urge. I need my fear and my anxiety and my panic. Okay, people, I'm, I'm sure people at that moment when you said that I need my suicidal urge said, okay, what the heck is happening here <laughs> the on Insights at the Edge? So you're going to have to explain, you're going to have to explain now, that, Carla. In DEI, the rule about the suicidal urge is my human body or your human body, that's off the table. That is off the table. The suicidal urge does not come to kill us. Although, because it's one of the most negative emotions, we don't develop skills in it in any way, shape, or form. What I notice about suicidal urge and its very close friend, depression, depression comes forward to, to pull our energy away when the way we are going and the things we are doing are not going to work. They are not going to work. And if you, if you look at your depression and talk to your depression, you'll see within just a few seconds what that thing is. Depression pulls your energy away. Suicidal urge is a stronger emotion that comes forward when the difference between who you are in your soul and what you have become in this world of expedience and lies and emotional repression is not just unlivable, but it's going to kill you eventually. And so I've learned throughout my life to to trust the suicidal urge completely and also to understand how to identify it when it is it is in a very soft and subtle place so that i can work with it then when i i i experienced um early childhood assault uh, for a number of years this is not good and often people will develop a a, a depressive disorder which i did my first a suicidal urge came upon me when I was 10 years old and I grew up with suicide. So it's, it's a path I have walked with my friend's suicide. And when the suicidal urge comes up now in its soft place, it's what I call the dead flat. No, no, I refuse. There's a power behind that. No, it, it can't be moved. That is where I come to with a suicidal urge, but when it's more intense and there's that death urge, what we've learned to do with it in DEI is turn it to away from our bodies, away from our life and turn it toward what it is. And if you ask your suicidal urge, what needs to die? It's not me. 
suicidal urge, what needs to die, it will point it out. This poverty, this loneliness, this shitty family, this racism, this, right? It is one of the most life-affirming emotions there is. But if you believe in positive and negative emotions, which is a terrible idea, then you will miss some of the most beautiful emotions in the entire emotional realm. And you'll just be over with the, you know, the ones that think everything's okay. Okay, let, let's talk a little bit more about the power of emotions in the workplace and specifically this notion that you have that uh, positivity uh, isn't necessarily better than sort of a critical assessment of how everything could go wrong. I'll say one thing, Carla. If I had to work on a team with people, you could say, would you like to work with this angry, depressed, negative person? Or you could work with this positive, well-resourced, optimistic, can-do person. Who do you want to work with, Tammy? Uh, it's not a hard, hard question for me to answer. I want to work with the person who sees the possibilities in the situation. I mean, that's what's going to lift me up. That's what's going to help me. So I I'm challenging you on this because I want to welcome the full range of people's emotions at the same time. I love working with people who see possibilities and are positive. Well, I, I think it. everybody does. And I think there's a, there's an attribution error there that's happening that a person who is feeling the emotions of anger or depression or rage must therefore be acting them out and, and taking their whole psyche and putting them into the house of anger and rage and depression. And then that way, that person could not be optimistic. And that is, again, that slicing of emotions into those two unnatural and untrue categories of positive and negative. I'm an extremely optimistic person, and I work harder than most people could even imagine. And I have learned that when my panic comes up, uh, something's dangerous. Stop. I've learned that when that dead flat no comes up, that is, that's the rule. Don't go any further. I know that when my anger comes up, something's going on, my fear, my anxiety, with any emotion, when my happiness, when my joy, when my contentment, to be fully resourced as an emotional person, as an emotionally well-regulated person is not to sit in one emotion, you know, in the way that I do with my optimism, which is very toxic, uh, you know, to be just optimistic and not intelligently optimistic, meaning you see the problems, you see the issues, you call them out. Um, you're just going to traipse forward into, you know, silly land and you're going to make something that people who are better with their other emotions are going to have to come fix for you because you didn't consider all of the options because you didn't have access to all of your emotions, which are not there, there are aspects of your cognition and your genius. If you don't have access to your emotions, you simply do not have full access to your entire psyche. That's helpful. That's clarifying. Now, I have a, another question to ask you about uh, hard emotions in the workplace. And this is something that I've, you know, I haven't been clear on the best way to, to deal with it, which is how to work with grief when it comes up. And it always comes up in a, once you have more than you know, a few people working with you, someone is having something happen in their personal life, their mother, grandmother, their friend, su major suffering, death of a pet, you know, on and on. And what is, I'm not sure if appropriate is the right word, but what's skillful in terms of how the workplace responds when someone's grieving? Sometimes people can grieve for months. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it's really important. I have that in um, an, a con, an area called emotionally, what did I call it? Emotionally agile transitions is what do you do when someone dies? What do you do when there's uh, illness or trauma, the death of a worker or a family member? Um, grief rituals. You do some form of a grief ritual. And in a place where there's not a great deal of understanding of rituals, you would have a remembrance wall. You would check in on the person. You wouldn't pretend like it's, um, it's business as usual. 
if if the workplace has more of a ritual awareness, then there might be a, a whole wall like a like a um, I don't know what would you call it in in a in a spiritual tradition. It would be a whole tribute wall. It'd be a shrine, right? And so you would do what humans do when there is grief. There's no reason that the workplace cannot make a space for what humans do when there is grief, which is grief rituals. Okay. Now you, you talked about the possibility of something like a wall of remembrance. And I thought mm -hmm. one of the really interesting sections of your new book had to do with this whole topic of empathetic design. If we were to bring our care and our empathy to our physical environment at work, what would that ask of us in terms of our physical environment? How do we design with empathy in mind? I wonder if you could give us some of the most important things we need to look at in terms of physical workspaces. The most important things are a space to rest, privacy, and break times. And sadly, here in the United States, break times are mandated at 15 minutes every four hours and uh, one, you know, 30 minute to 60 minutes lunch break if you, if you work more than four hours. Um, that is simply not enough break time. And you will find uh, workers creating break times even though there's not a break time. So it's really important to understand whatever the mandate is in the U.S. workplace, throw that out and help people find what their natural break time is. One of the ways that you find out is if you start getting distracted or if you start getting bored. And those are signs or fidgety that you need to get up and walk away from your workplace. And so that would mean there's places for you to go. That would mean there's private spaces. I talk about what I call the devil's, um, the devil's floor plan, which is the open, um, the open office, which you don't get privacy. You don't get privacy from sound. You don't get visual privacy. And there's really no place to go. So there's no way to get away from work. And you'll find people beginning to, um, you know, browse. You find them browsing on the computers uh, because it's the only way that they can get any kind of time to themselves. So privacy, rest, uh, and, and break times are crucial for mental health and for cognition. How much break time do you think people need? Because you said 15 minutes every four hours, that's not enough. That's definitely not enough. Um, well, there's been a lot of studies that show that for most people, there's a place, there's a sweet spot, and it can depend on how tired you are and what else is going on, but it's between 50 and 90 minutes that you can work straight through for that long, and then you've got to take a five or 10 minute get out and away. So if you're working and you're writing, and you find yourself getting distracted. Don't go on social media. Get up and get out and go and have an actual walk away from work. This is especially important for people doing high, um, high specificity work like art or, or, or building or um, manufacturing. They need to get away from that. After the, if people go past that natural place, that's when mistakes happen. So... If you want a better, um, a more productive workplace, you've got to let people rest. It's crucial. It seems backward. You, you have this notion, you call it repair stations. I thought that was uh, an mm -hmm. interesting, clever phrasing. What's a repair station at work? A repair station is from sociologist Irving Goffman's work. And basically, it's a backstage place where you can speak the truth. I think you've been to Esalen. And uh, it's a big, or it used to be, because I don't know if Esalen's going to open back up, but it's a big, famous retreat center. And I'm always fascinated to go to retreat centers because of the stressors that are placed on the workers. People come there and it takes them a long time to get there and they come there to have their peaceful time. But that peaceful time can sometimes mean that they act like jerks to the workers, right? If the workers don't do everything perfectly. So I gave a workshop there 
uh, especially about the front desk workers. And I was like, it's a completely open, it was open on two sides work where you come in and, and you, and you check in. And I was fascinated. I just stood there and watched them um, dealing with people who were late, people who were frazzled, people who were, and I was like, there is no, where do they go? How do they function? If they're always supposed to be this smiling, open, peaceful space of I'm the Esalen person. Um, and I did a workshop with them and I asked them, I said, what emotions do people come to you with? And they had a sheet of emotions that I had given them. And what happens if you are just overwhelmed and you need to get out? You can't say anything because you're out in the open. So how do you go into the back office? And they said, we have an eye, we have an eye movement we do with each other and we just learned it. And that means um, if one more person comes up to me, I am gonna, I'm gonna go off. So they would go back, right? And then someone else would come forward and you would never know because they're all with their peaceful, you know, pastel the energy of Esalen colors. But I asked her, what emotions are people coming to you with when they come up? And I thought they're coming there to have a peaceful time, right? So to be happiness, contentment, and joy. And she goes, um, um, let's see, anxiety, suicide, depression, and anger. And I looked at the others. I said, do you agree? And they said, yeah, and grief. So people are coming and they're dumping off all of these supposedly negative emotions so they can have their Esalen experience, but they are dumping it on the staff. And yeah, I was, they need breaks. They need a repair station where they can go and talk, right? If they don't have that, you're going to burn that staff out. You're going to have so much turnover. Now, you know, in terms of uh, empathic design and physical spaces, I think you've given uh, some good insights here on what's essential. Now, a lot of people are working from home, of course. We've entered the, of the remote, uh, and it's interesting that you say yay, because what I was curious is what your view is of our emotional regulation and an emotionally regulated workforce when people are working from home. That is harder. Now, my workforce at Emotion Dynamics is there's only one person here in California with me. Everybody else who works for me is on Zoom. Everybody. Um, and so it means creating that on Zoom. It means having time together. It's, it's quite a, a bit of uh, community building when people are separate from each other. And it's really helpful to have things like conscious complaining with a partner so people can stay together. I also have a practice called ethical empathic gossip so that people can do the, the natural um, social bonding that, uh, that they do when they gossip, but we add ethics and empathy to it. So it's not mean-spirited, you know, unethical gossip. But, but but let's talk about that for a moment yeah. because you know it sounds true we really encourage people to go direct if they have an issue yeah. not to go to someone else who can't solve their problem but go to the person that you have the issue with. Yeah. And you know the idea being that when you're engaging in a lot of gossip or talking to someone who can't actually solve the problem has nothing to do with it it can create a lot of drama. Yes. And it can take a lot of energy out of the work. So what is ethical empathic gossip that's how is it constructive gossip, not well, draining gossip? Gossip is understood anthropologically to be important in every culture, at every age, and all genders, that there will always be gossip. And what gossip is, it's informal communication that is not um, sanctioned. So the sanctioned communication in a workplace might be, you know, the memo goes here and this happens and this this is a text and this is when we're meeting and we take notes and we do Robert's Rules of Order. Um, the, the unsanctioned communication is, did you know that Mary's dad just died, right? There is no sanctioned way for Mary to say that within the structure of that workplace. If you don't know that, if you don't know that unsanctioned informal information, you could make a terrible faux pas, or you could put a bunch of work onto Mary that she literally cannot do, right? So that is what gossip does. It gives us informal communication. In an emotionally unregulated social structure, gossip is ugly. 
It tends to be unempathic. It tends to be jockeying for position. It tends to be, we've all been gossiped about in that way, in an unempathic and unethical way. But that doesn't change the need for gossip and informal communication. And so when we know it's time for an ethical empathic gossip session with somebody that we trust, it's because we've tried what we can with this person. We find ourselves gossiping about them in an unhealthy way. We find ourselves sniping and griping and just being a jerk. So that's when we call for ethical empathic gossip. And we tell the story. We generally take uh, 13 minutes. That's the sweet spot we've found. Each person does it. And we call it EEG. And we'll also text each other and we'll go on our Facebook groups. Does anyone have time for an EEG? And we'll just jump on Zoom. It keeps us connected, but it also helps us trust. So you find someone you trust and you say, look, I've been being, I've been just in such a bad state about David. And here's what's going on. Do you have time? And so the person who is the partner in ethical empathic gossip listens asks, what have you tried? And gives input and feedback so that the person can go back to David, having worked it out with someone they trust. If I am riled up with David and I don't do this ethical empathic gossip first and get somebody's opinions and input that I require, because remember we're a social species, we regulate each other emotionally. Uh, other people are crucial to our emotional functioning. And if I go there and I am still riled up and I'm still like anti-David and I go and try to talk to him, I'm probably just going to tear into him. You know, I'm just probably going to be like, well, David, here's what's going on. Um, you do your thing and we'll just agree to disagree. Like you won't have any skills. So it's so crucial to be able to go to that third party, figure it out. As long as they agree and they get to do theirs with you or they owe it to you at a later time or you owe it to them. And then you can go to David and try a different way. Usually my empathic gossip partners are people who know the party that I'm having trouble with. And sure. What's the, what's the ethical part, Carla? What's the ethical guy? It's ethical because the rule is I must go back and work with David in a new way. Uh huh. Okay. It's not just gossip. It's, it's action focused. Um, and it helps me develop a stronger relationship with my partner, but also with David. Because now it's a triangulation that's not toxic. I don't know. I grew up in a big family and they did toxic, unethical, unempathic, triangulated gossip all the time. So I built this for them. <laughs> it's, it's helpful. Thank you for the clarification. Now, you know, we've been talking a lot about unregulated social structures at mm -hmm. work, what most of us have walked into, and the idea that we could possibly take all of this knowledge and acceptance and intelligence of our emotions and start to create regulated social structures. My question to you is, what's the role of just regulated human beings? You know, I mean, I think it's great in that your work, you're focusing on the social structures. Like, don't just put it all on the person mm -hmm. to have their mindfulness practice and their dance class before work. And it's not all on the person because they're stepping into these truly dysfunctional emotional environments. I get that. Yeah. But now let's just for a moment talk about what, what responsibility does a person have as they enter the environment for their own self-regulation, in your view? To have a functional emotional vocabulary to understand the importance of emotions, to understand how crucial our, I guess to your point, how crucial my capacity to function and be grounded and present and, and engaged and empathic is to the health of everyone, right? So if I'm not together, uh, and, and it's time for me to go do a presentation or a meeting in the DEI community, I will tell them, I did not sleep last night. And so, you know, I'll be honest and say, I'm not at my best right now. And if somebody asks a question and you see me, you know, you know, struggling, would you please step in? Right. So I know myself well enough to know where my holes are in my psyche 
And in so doing and being honest about it as the leader of DEI, everyone else is developing in that way as well, right? So as a leader in, a, in an emotionally well-regulated social structure, you really have to take an equal and egalitarian position as a human being and then you know show the beautiful parts of it and show the crappy parts of it so that it's okay to not always be at your best mm-hmm. you know you know carla i have to say every time i talk to you i learn stuff and i learn uh, also and challengingly the ways that i have biases towards this or that some part of me is not wholly accepting of this difficult yeah. aspect of emotional life so you always help uh, point that out to me in a way that I think is uh, very growthful. So thank you. It's so growthful. It is. It is. <laughs> you know, I was thinking uh, you are an agitator, but you're living at a time when our entire society is uh, so dysfunctional that, of course, we need agitators. So uh, as a final mm-hmm. question, what do you think about that? What do you think about that, you agitator? I'm like, I would like to give up that job and have everybody, please, Lord, learn how to work with your emotions, okay? One of the things I say is if you know how you feel, you'll know who you are. I also noticed in this last period of the president who shall not be named is that if you don't know how to work your emotions, someone's going to come along and work them for you. And what I saw in the tremendous breakdown of our country and also the UK um, and these, 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 these very, very troubled leaders and that people were fooled and manipulated and had their emotions and their empathy manipulated. It's like if you do not understand your emotions, you are not in control of your life. You do not know who you are, and you are, you are prey for people who can manipulate you. And this is true everywhere. Um, so I'm an agitator for the soul. <laughs> like you have these brilliant emotions inside you. They've been talking to you from the moment you were born, and probably before then, they know what's going on. They tell the truth. They always do. They may not be fun, but. Um, Sometimes truth isn't fun. An agitator for the soul. I've been talking with Carla McLaren with Sounds True. She's written the new book, The Power of Emotions at Work, Accessing the Vital Intelligence in Your Workplace. She's also written the landmark book, The Language of Emotions, The Art of Empathy, and a book on embracing anxiety. Carla, great to be with you. As always, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world.